Our sermon passage this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 948 in the Bibles we provide, and page 288 in the children's Bibles. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's been very good to be with you. Good morning. It's good to be back one more time. My fraternity brothers played a drinking game in college. I didn't. Um, I played a more dangerous game. It was called Judging My Brother's Spiritual Journey. Ever play it? I was one of the most devoted leaders of a, of a wonderful campus ministry, and several of us outfasted, out-evangelized, out-studied, out-prayed everybody else, and most of the other members didn't quite reach our high standards. When all the week's prayer meetings and Bible studies were over, our inner circle would gather for pizza and Cokes, and sooner or later, somebody would, would say, you know, why isn't Brian going for it anymore? Or if attendance uh, was low at a meeting, we'd say, why aren't people committed anymore? Or if someone decided to leave for another campus ministry, we might worry aloud that that Rival ministry didn't care much about evangelism. You know, when I look back, I can't blame that on the leaders. My leaders were godly, humble people. I think the blame is squarely on a sin that I have struggled with my whole life. I constantly judge other people's spiritual journeys. And I don't think I'm alone. Every Christian community I've ever been a part of has struggled with judgment. And I wanted to talk about that with you for this last morning because a judging community is a shaming community. This series has created a lot of uh, good conversation and notes that have come to me. I'll share a few this morning. Uh, one young woman wrote me, my strong faith and my above-reproach behavior granted me favor with my teachers and youth pastors. 
In college, ministry consumed my life. Everything revolved around making sure that I was being a radical world changer for God. The summer before my senior year, I began to see how many of my choices were rooted in shame, however. And I began to experience freedom from shame that summer and make choices not rooted in shame. When I returned to campus in the fall, my best friend noted that she had heard that I had worn a bikini over the summer and had spent time with a guy outside of our campus ministry. My friend accused me of not loving God anymore. Eventually, I was pushed out of the ministry. I felt ashamed of myself. My anxiety was at all-time high, and shaming was making me sick and insane. Judging communities are shaming communities. Our Lord says judging has no place in the beloved community. Matthew 7, 2, judge not lest you be judged. So this odd, kind of difficult passage we're looking at this morning is about a church or actually probably a network of house churches in Rome around 60 AD where there was a lot of judging going on. And you get a feel for what was happening in the first verses as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. The weak in faith are Jewish Christians who feel like uh, they're still under part of the old covenant, that they need to worship on Saturday, that they can't eat certain foods. The Gentile Christians don't feel bound by those old covenant laws. And Paul says that they're judging each other and despising each other. Uh, it's a strong Greek word that means to treat with utter contempt, to act as if someone has no value at all. Now, we can read a passage like that, and those are quirky things we're not fighting about. But let's think for a minute. What are some of the ways that we judge each other? Politics. How could he ever vote for school choices? How could they send their child to a public school? Don't they understand they're going to lose their faith? Why would they homeschool? Aren't they just running from the world? Why would they send them to a private school? Isn't that elitist? Lifestyle. Did you hear where they went for vacation? <laughs> Callings. Mystics don't think activists pray enough. Activists think mystics just look at their navel. Clothing. I, I'd never spend that much on a sweater. And then there are the subtle, almost imperceptible looks, the, the texts that aren't returned that just give you the sense that you're not in the in-group. Another friend wrote me this week, during my sophomore year of high school, families from my church left to start a home church that was exploring the charismatic gifts. My friends would call and tell me about the incredible miracles they were experiencing. They just wanted me to know God that way too. Would I come? I think they were genuine in wanting to help me, but I often left those conversations feeling less than. I began an unhealthy pattern of trying to prove my faith to my friends. I became highly critical of myself. 
I no longer trusted my own quiet prayers. I constantly felt that I wasn't enough. I still carry pieces of that shame with me today, that I'm not enough, that there's a divide between me and God that good Christians don't experience, and I will never pass that divide. So judging shames. Paul says that we aren't to judge, we are to welcome the person who's weak in faith. It's a Greek word that Luke uses when he describes how the people of Malta welcomed Paul after a shipwreck. John uses it to describe how Jesus welcomes us into heaven. So it's a word about hospitality. So how are we supposed to be in the body of Christ when we're all following Christ in different ways? When your journey looks differently than mine? When maybe we disagree powerfully about certain parts of the Christian life? What are we supposed to do? Well, you start a small group over there, you start a small group over there, and you talk about each other. No, we're supposed to be hospitable. We're supposed to welcome. And Paul gives three reasons why we shouldn't judge our brother or sister in Christ. The first one, he says, my brother is accountable to God, not me. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another It's before his own master that he stands or falls. He's essentially saying, what are you you doing? Why are you judging your brother? He's accountable to God, not you. You're not his judge. God is. I don't have the right to pass judgment on your spiritual journey because you're accountable to God, not to me. Now, at this point, there's a question that we should be asking. Well, what about the texts about holding each other accountable? And there are a lot of verses about that that we we need to take seriously. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul can't be saying in Romans 14, that we just never talk to each other about anything, that we never press in, that we never express concern. He can't be saying that. But I'm I'm almost leery of the phrase, hold one another accountable anymore. It just gives me the willies because it's so often misused to shame. So yes, there there is that part of the body of Christ, but how, how do we do it? And I want you to think right now, Maybe there's a person in your life who you're concerned about. Um, might be a family member, might be a friend, and and you're wondering, you know, is this should I should I should I speak? Should I press in? What what should I do here? And how do I do it without shaming them? Let me just give you a couple of questions you can ask yourself before you hold your friend accountable. One, has my friend invited me to speak into his life? Do we have the quality of friendship to have this conversation, and have I earned the right to have it? Two, is it possible that my friend is simply following God in a different way than I am and not heading down a dangerous spiritual path? Three, am I approaching my friend with a vision for who God is making her to be, In other words, am I trusting that God is already at work in her life? Four, am I making assumptions about my friend's behavior that are not formed from patient listening? Five, 
Do I feel responsible for saving my friend? Am I taking responsibility for her choices? Six, is the relationship reciprocal? Am I open to my sister speaking into my life too? And seven, who is this really about? Do I want to hold my friend accountable because I'm truly concerned for her? Or do I just need to relieve my own anxiety over her choices? So yes, let's hold each other accountable, but let's be thoughtful and prayerful about how we do it. The second reason we could put like this, the reason we don't need to judge each other is because we can trust our sister's journey. And, and this, this is something I'm more and more aware of in, in my own heart. Judgment and shame are poisonous weeds that grow in the soil of mistrust and suspicion. And we are so quick to assume that the motives behind another's spiritual choices are impure. And, and Paul does not do that here. He's not naive. He knows there's a lot of junk going on in the church. But look what he says. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. He's saying the Jewish traditionalist that feels he has to worship on Saturday, he's doing it to honor the Lord. The Gentile progressive who feels free to eat meat, he's doing it in honor of the Lord. And then Paul says, all believers share this deep desire. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. I think what he's saying is you give your brother the benefit of the doubt. Yes, there may be something wrong, and you may have to have a hard conversation, but start assuming that they're trying to honor the Lord. If we were reading this, or Paul was writing it today, he might say, the career mother and the stay-at-home mother are both using their gifts to honor the Lord. The Democrat and the Republican are voting in ways they think honor the Lord. The mystic and the activist are both trying to honor the Lord. Each one is trying to live for the Lord. I think our communities would become less shaming if we started to trust one another's journey. And I know this is hard because I usually think I'm right <laughs> about stupid stuff. I'm a swimming Friday morning and this dear guy that I love, it's 5.30, practice starts at 5.30, you ought to be in the pool at 5.30. And this guy gets here at 5.30 and he stands on the deck and just kind of wiggles around for 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, what are you doing getting up in the morning and standing on the deck? That's the stupidest thing in the world. And so I'm swimming back and forth and looking up. When is he going to get in the pool? And I thought, what are you doing? Why do you care in the slightest when that guy gets in the pool? It's not your problem. It's just hardwired in us to judge. A serious judgment problem I had a few years ago, um, this will sound odd, and maybe it is odd, but a lot of people in my church don't come much. <laughs> Do you, do you have that problem here? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I was kind of raised in a generation where you just kind of go unless you're dying, and then maybe, you, you know, you get the tape or something. But um, <laughs> some of my most devoted people come once a month. And some people who feel very involved just don't come. And I got, I started to judge them and, and be angry with them. And I think part of it is I, you know, I felt like my feelings were hurt or something. But so I started to sit down with some of them and, and talk to them. I said, why, why don't you come to church? And those were interesting conversations. <laughs> and and uh, some of them had answers that kind of bothered me. But uh, one dear young lady said, uh, Doug, you take yourself way too seriously. <laughs> so, but what she was saying was, the corporate gathering is not as important to me as it is to you. And I honestly don't know what to do about that. And I've got these wonderful people that are you know, they're gathering in other ways and pursuing Christ passionately, but the corporate gathering isn't as important to them and it troubles me and it puzzles me and I still believe that gathering for worship is essential and I preach that passive-aggressively. It drips out in my illustrations. <laughs> um, but finally, I realized, look, you better make a choice here, buddy, because this ain't changing. Right? I mean, nationally, the, the average church attendance is um, one every 3.5 weeks. And so I decided I'd stop judging them. And I would trust that God is somehow at work in their, in their lives and, and that they're doing their best to honor the Lord with their choices. And this has really changed the way that I'm thinking about being a pastor. And now I'm in this place where I find myself asking, how do I pastor people in my church who don't come to my church? <laughs> and it's led to a lot of meetings in their living room, we're, we're exploring starting a podcast. I don't know what it looks like, but. I was talking about this with a friend, and he said, I, I need to share my story with you. And he, he wrote this. He said, I was working along a friend in ministry, and I had this feeling that there was a growing distance between us about how we approach spiritual things. And this uneasiness in me grew every time we interacted. I tried to minimize it. I realize now I was beginning to feel threatened. You see, I felt like I was growing. I was coming to a new understanding of things. Pause, footnote. That's when we are the most judgmental. When I look back over my life, it's that glorious moment when I see something I've never seen before and it's changing my life and I want everybody to know it. That's often when we can be the most judgmental. Well, he says, we were going in different directions. What I was learning felt like a matter of spiritual life and death. And looking back, I wished I'd stopped right there and had a conversation. I might have been able to express my fear and been curious to see if they felt uneasy too, but I didn't. And ultimately, my fear led to anger. It spilled out in my words. Damage, hurt, and broken relationships ensued. Years have passed, and I now see more clearly that I did not honor my friend's journey. I believed I was in the right place, and anyone not walking right alongside of me needed to be enlightened. The arrogance of that causes me to shudder now, and I still see the same tendency in me today. 
But when I remember that I don't know what God is up to in another's life, I can love them well. Instead of judging them, I can, by the power of the Spirit, move toward them in love, sincerely curious about their journey, their fears, and their longings. See, I don't think this means we just stop caring about where people are going, we stop being discerning, we stop having hard conversations. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying... Let's begin with the assumption, the belief that God is in me and God is in you and I can honor the work of God in your life. And if I don't understand it, rather than judging you or criticizing you, why don't I start by being curious about you and asking you, what is going on? Why did you say that at the elder meeting? Why are you not coming anymore? Why do you not want to be around our family anymore? The third reason Paul gives about why we don't need to be judging each other is because we're all going to be judged. Uh, Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He quotes Isaiah, as I live, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I think this is Paul's way of saying what Jesus said when he said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? I think he's saying, look, you're accountable to God for you. They're accountable to God for them. Don't you have enough stuff in your own life to worry about? Why don't you focus on on your journey? and less on judging others. By the way, a friend pointed out to me that uh, oftentimes when someone else's journey really bothers us, it's because it's reflecting back something in my own life that I don't like. I do find that the older I get and the more humbled I am by the darkness in my own heart that still remains the less energy I have for judging others. Judging communities or shaming communities, we just don't have any business judging one another. And Paul, that's been the point of this passage. Now, anytime you talk about this passage, there are two questions that come up. We've addressed one, but aren't we supposed to hold each other accountable? And I hope we've talked about that. The other one is deserves a whole sermon, and we don't have time for that. Um, it's this, shouldn't, shouldn't we judge doctrinal error? And there is, I think, kind of a misteaching out there that, yeah, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's just be sincere and we love you and accept each other. And that's not the church. Um, Paul obviously cares about doctrinal purity. Romans 14 is actually in the book of Romans, right? There's eight chapters explicating the doctrine of justification by faith. Romans 16 says, watch out for those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. So belief matters. Yes, we should judge and discern doctrine. There's a time to point out error. There's a time to debate error. And this is the, the difficult question when is it time to press into that? And when is it time to 
embrace diversity? It's an important question. I, and again, worthy of a whole sermon. But um, I think Paul's own practice as a pastor provides an example. When he is pastoring the Roman churches, he, he doesn't confront the error of the weaker brother. And, and food laws and Sabbath keeping were important things. But he doesn't correct them. He seems to believe that the tent of orthodoxy is big enough to hold believers who disagree on important matters. And he encourages Christians with different theology to honor honor one another's journey and extend hospitality to one another. So you've got a theologically diverse church in Rome, and he's telling them to quit judging each other about it. But in the book of Galatians, Paul vigorously defends the gospel and warns against false teaching. He confronts doctrinal error because the core of the gospel message is at stake. And I think there's a principle in there. There is a place for judging doctrine, but I think it's when the gospel is being perverted. And it's important to keep in mind that many doctrinal areas in which good Christians, sincerely living under the authority of Scripture and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, still disagree about. And this is because sin has influenced our ability to read Scripture, and nobody reads Scripture perfectly. And sometimes, well-meaning believers think another believer is in doctrinal error when, in fact, the other believer holds a legitimate alternative position. One of the ways that we can see that good Christians disagree on important doctrinal questions like was happening in the church in Rome is this series of books that most pastors have in their library called the Three Views or Four Views series. And uh, I've actually got most of these or many of these, and I'll just read you a few of their titles. And the reason why I'm doing this is just to, to let you see that good Christians can disagree about important stuff. We all agree on the gospel. We have to all believe what all Christians in all times and all places have always believed. That's orthodoxy. But outside of that, there's, diff- there's diff- good people differing. Here are a couple of the titles. The Nature of the Atonement, Four Views. Understanding, Four Views on Baptism. Perspectives on the Doctrine of God, Four Views. Four Views on Church Government, Four Views on Hell. Divorce and Remarriage, Four Views. Four Views on Pluralism, Women in Ministry, Four Views. Four Views on Eternal Security, Revelation, Four Views. Divine Foreknowledge, Four Views. Four Views of the Lord's Supper, Predestined and Free Will, Four Views. The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. War, Four Views. Four Views of the End Times, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views. God in Time, Four Views. Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and the Canaanite Genocide. That one's a spellbinder, Four Views. Four Views. <laughs> I've got that one. For views on moving beyond the Bible to theology, psychology and Christianity, five views, science and Christianity, four views. What about those who haven't heard? Three views, three views on the rapture. How should we choose? Three views on decision-making, three views on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, the Genesis debate, three views on creation, perspectives on Christian worship, five views, five views on apologetics, church, state, and justice, five views. That's not all of them. And the reason why I point that out to you is is just to suggest that good Christians can disagree in in how they read Scripture and still be earnestly following God. Yes, when the gospel's compromised, 
we need to press in. But if it's a, an important but non-essential issue to our salvation, we need to practice Romans 14 and welcome and give grace. Well, that's a terrible way to end a series on shame, but I, I wanted to get that in because um, I think it's important. I am so honored to have been with you. Uh, I will be praying for you. You have a beautiful future ahead. It's been very healing for me to be with you again. Let's pray. Lord, I, I think it was uh, Arnie who, who said after the first service that Jesus Christ is the head of this church, and he's the head of this church when there's a senior pastor here, and he's the head of this church when there's not one. And as praying a little bit in John Wood's old office between services, it just was reminded how powerfully you met the people of God in, in between places. Deserts, thin places, liminal spaces. So Lord, this dear family is in between leaders, but you're still this, the head of the church. And so, Lord, I, I pray that, that you quickly bring the right man, but as they wait, Lord, I pray that this might be a season of renewing and refreshing and healing and clarity of vision that people would step up and that 20 years from now, this church might look back and say, you know, 2019 was incredible and we didn't even have a pastor. Come, Lord Jesus, meet this dear congregation and say, Spend a little time in the wilderness. Amen.